This morning, we are continuing in the Gospel of John with another healing story, though you'll see as we unpack the story uh, that it's not the story that you would expect and that it's not necessarily about physical healing, though that's usually how we frame it. Uh, We'll pick up in John 5, verse 1. It says this, uh, Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there's a, <clears throat> now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which, Ar- which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. The one who, who was there had been given an in- one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He, began, he picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Let's pray. Jesus, we uh, open up our hearts to you this morning, to who you are, your nature, your character, your love, uh, your ridiculous grace uh, that has been poured out through the cross and burial and resurrection. And uh, we just admit our hunger for you, Lord. They're the deepest desires of our uh, reborn hearts are to be with you. Uh, and to live in that place of uh, abiding and deep rootedness, and we we want to be full of the things that you're full of, uh, and yet sometimes we uh, we know that we want that, and we say that we want that, but we go and live a totally different way uh, that's incongruent with that. And so, would you uh, come in your grace, Lord? Would you touch? Would you heal? Would you open our eyes uh, to what it looks like to be? like you, to be deeply rooted, to be full of the things that you are full of uh, in a world that needs more of you so, so badly. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, On its face, this is a simple story about a paralyzed man being healed. He was sick for 38 years. 38 years lying on a mat. Uh, Jesus heals him, and he walks away free and restored. Jesus loves to heal. This man needed healing, and he received it. So the simplest thing we can say, face value, is just, wow, God, you are so good. 
You are enthroned above everything, our physical ailments, all of it, and you heal and you're good. But as you sink deeper into the text, uh, you start to realize that this isn't primarily a story about physical healing. This is actually a story about something else. And in order to see that, it helps to grasp the context of where these things are unfolding. Uh, let's start by setting the scene. Jesus is back in Jerusalem. Last uh, time he was in Galilee on the outskirts. Now he's back in Jerusalem. He's in the center of power. It is festival times. So you can imagine the city sort of at capacity, people packed in the streets. Uh, he's not at the temple this time, which is where he often is. Instead, he's right nearby at a well-known place called the Pool of Bethesda. And I think we have a few pictures, but the Pool of Bethesda is the sort of red-roofed uh, colonnade structures. There was pools in the middle of them. And you can see by proximity, there's another photo as well, it's almost um, in the shadow of the temple. So he's still sort of in the center of Jerusalem, uh, in this place uh, of great power. Uh, but the colonnades themselves, the pools of Bethesda, were sort of a cross between a daycare and a healing center. You can imagine dozens and more likely hundreds of people who in this society are you know, disabled but need someone to sort of care for them. And so uh, their sick or disabled people were all over this place. And there was a superstition or a theory that these pools in the middle of the colonnades that every once in a while uh, and some sort of angelic presence would come and stir the pool. And so if you, stall, if you saw this, the pool sort of stirring or bubbling, the, the theory was, well, the first you know, sick person who, who gets in there then receives healing uh, from this pool. And the Bible's kind of vague. It doesn't really explain, like, are people actually receiving healing or is this just a totally unfounded theory? We, I don't, it doesn't say in the text. But that's the idea uh, behind this place. And so Jesus strolls into this location knowing that there will be dozens, if not hundreds, of uh, sick, hurting, uh, disabled, paralyzed people uh, who are there. But more importantly, Jesus knows it's the Sabbath day. And if you go all the way back to the beginning of your Bibles, the opening chapters of Scripture, God engages in six days of creative activity. But on the seventh day, we're told that God rested from all of his work, that the seventh day was then made or marked as a day of rest. It was actually said to be a holy day which in this time and place in the ancient Near East would have been somewhat of a novel concept. If you think of uh, every single human society, tribe, culture, all around the world, all throughout history, with the possible exception of sort of modern secular culture, every uh, human society in human history has essentially had a concept of holy space be that a, a temple or a mountain or a unique spot in their landscape that was thought to be holy, a meeting place between divinity as they conceived it and humanity. So the idea of holy space was basically widespread and universal. But what was novel about the scriptures and about Genesis is that God was establishing a holy time. So if you think of what a temple is as a meeting place between divinity and humanity in, in a place that's marked off, 
These are the boundaries. This is the space that I enter to meet with God. In the beginning, God essentially did that for humanity with the seventh day or the Sabbath day. It was not a place of holy space, which was more universal, but it was this novel concept of holy time, a unique time that was marked off from all other times as a place to meet with God. So the Sabbath day from the beginning is a big deal. And to Sabbath or Shabbat uh, literally means to stop or to cease. Uh, you don't work on the Sabbath day, and the heart behind it is that you rest, you delight in God, uh, you trust Him for provision, you don't have to keep working on the seventh day, and you enjoy what He's given you instead of endlessly wanting and working and worrying. It's an entire day to be still and know that He is God, an entire day without labor or work. Uh, but the question then arises, what qualifies as work? If you tell a whole culture of people from the top down, you are not to work today, okay, well, what does that mean? Like, I won't go to my nine to five job, but what qualifies as work and what qualifies as rest? And you have to remember uh, that in our culture, we have a government and then we have sort of uh, religious structures and institutions. In many places, including ancient Israel, they are one and the same. So the religious leaders are the government. They set the rules. They uh, sort of regulate from the top down. And so one of the things they have to do for the nation of Israel is define the rules of the Sabbath day. What counts as work? What counts as rest? What's okay? What's not okay? But as they get into the details of defining those things for the people, sadly, they come into a place where they miss the point. They actually, over time, lose the heart behind it. They begin making the Sabbath sort of a, an legalistic external thing that's imposed from the top down instead of a day of rest and delight. For example, the leadership decided that you cannot be healed or ask for healing on the Sabbath because healing, in their eyes, is a life-giving, creative act that was more in line, by their interpretation, was more in line with the first six days of Genesis than it was with the seventh day. God spent six days creating life and, and, and bringing life out of nothing. So the seventh day, no, that's not for that type of life. That's not for healing. And of course, there were many, many other regulations. You are forbidden to carry any sort of load or pack on the Sabbath. You're not to pick anything from a field, and on it went. Uh, but these interpretations over time had become so strict that they'd become a burden to the people instead of a joy. And so Jesus has come to Jerusalem not to celebrate the festival or to heal the sick, but to reclaim the Sabbath. You can imagine the scene. Jesus walks into the colonnades, hundreds of sick people around him, and he's healed hundreds before, but not today. Today, he's just looking for one. One man who he can partner with in sending a message to the Jewish leadership. So he surveys the scene carefully. He picks out a man 
who might be right for the job. He begins asking around, hey, what do you know about this guy? Oh, he's been here for 38 years. And, and then he moves in to talk to this man. Uh, he, he will be the perfect one for the job, but he has to be recruited first. So Jesus approaches this man and asks him, do you want to get well? Which is a fascinating question. And Jesus actually asks some version of this question in many other contexts, but this context is actually a bit unique. Remember that unlike the vast majority of healing stories in Scripture, in this case, this man did not ask for healing. He doesn't know who Jesus is. There's, he's not asking for healing. His friends aren't asking for healing. There's no expectation of that. There's no indication that the man has any faith for that. And yet, if Jesus heals him in this moment, his world will be turned upside down. And he will actually be thrust out of the life he knows and into a totally new world that will feel very strange to navigate. And so Jesus talks to him first. Essentially, he's saying, hey, you don't know me but I actually have the power to heal you. What do you think about that? Is that something that you would want to receive today? Are you prepared to walk out of the colonnades that have been your home for almost 40 years and walk out into a new world, into a new life? Uh, interestingly enough, the man does not say yes or no. Instead, he answers the question by saying, hey, when the water is stirred and supposedly healing is available, uh, someone else beats me down there every time. In, in essence, he's saying, I can't get healed. It's sort of this defeatist, I will, I'll never get healed. And, and notice that he still isn't showing any sign of faith. He doesn't know who Jesus is. Uh, and, and he doesn't know what's going to happen next. But then Jesus commands him. Through this interaction, Jesus sees, no, this is, this is appropriate. He wants this. And so he uh, speaks to this man and into this paralysis, and he says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. This is Jesus' faith. This is Jesus' initiative. And it says, at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Life rushed into his spine and legs, and he stood up and walked out of that place. And I can only imagine the buzz, the atmosphere, the stirring in that environment. As all of these sick people and, and their attendants are, are seeing this man who's perhaps been there longer than any of them stand up in full health and begin walking out of that place. Uh, they have known him as a man uh, by that time with very atrophied legs who, who was unable to move or get off of his mat, and now they're watching him stand up and walk away, out of the colonnades into a new life. So he picks up his mat and he walks, uh, but Jesus has knowingly tipped the first domino. There is a sense in which he is fishing for sharks, and this man is like blood in the water. You can just imagine him walking away from that place, past the temple, through the crowds, past the religious leadership, just beaming from ear to ear, right? He's on top of the world. He cannot believe what just happened to him. He didn't even see it coming. So you can imagine him strolling through the city, 
a huge smile on his face, carrying his mat under his arm. That would have probably been his only possession at that point uh, and the only thing he's really had for the last 40 years. And to him, it's also part of the healing. Part of the faith that he had was, no, I feel this coming on. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to pick this up. I'm going to walk out of here. It's part of his experience. Uh, But that's not how the Pharisees see it. They see a man walking by, and they stop him. And they don't see the healing. They don't see the joy. All they see is the mat. My goodness, you're walking through Jerusalem during the festival when the city is at capacity, undermining our authority, violating the Sabbath day. You might as well spit in our faces. In fact, it's become so convoluted in their minds that they're probably thinking, you are spitting in the face of God by disobeying our interpretation of the Sabbath. How dare you? And and so they grab this man. Hey, you, you right there, don't you know it's the Sabbath day? What are you doing? Why are you carrying your mat? I I think many of us have probably had moments in life where we were uh, unbelievably excited about something, and then someone just kind of out of the blue like attacks you or criticizes you over something that you feel is kind of petty. And you're just like, what What are you doing? Like, why? Why are you coming at me out of the blue over this silly thing? Like, I was, I was having such a good day. Uh, and, and that's this moment. Okay? You imagine this man just full of joy walking through the city and then all of a sudden getting yelled at by the national and religious authorities. And he's thinking, like, what? My, my what? Like, oh, my mat? Oh, oh right. I'm, I'm carrying my mat. I, I, of course. Well, it was, there was this guy. I just got healed. He, this guy told me that I should carry my mat. And they're just on top of me. Hey, who was this man? Who is con- who's manipulating you into violating uh, the Sabbath, into undermining our authority? This is, this is an act, an offensive, a rebellious act that you're undertaking. Who put you up to this? And he's thinking, well, there was, there was this guy. I actually don't know his name. I, I forgot to ask, but there was this guy. He was in the colonnades. I, I don't know who he was. He just healed me, and he was the one who told me to, to pick up my mat and go. And, and so the religious leaders are, are furious at this point. Now they recognize this is not an accident. This is not the ignorance of this man. There's actually someone behind it who, who's insulting us, who's undermining our authority. We need to know who that is. And eventually, Jesus finds this man again, and, he, and he's in a more public place, and he realizes, oh, man, this guy who healed me is not just anybody. His name's Jesus. I guess he's well-known. I didn't know him. And he eventually reports that back to the religious leadership, and then the stage is set for this, for this clash, for this confrontation that will now happen. He went fishing for sharks, and now the sharks have And verse 16, which we'll start at uh, next week, just says this. It says, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And in fact, they want to kill him. They, They want to destroy him. They want to eat him alive. 
But remember that from the beginning, this healing was a prophetic act meant to expose the heart of the Jewish leadership. He isn't just in Jerusalem in this moment to heal because healing is good. It's actually for a totally different purpose. One man to send a message to the leadership. And he's saying through this prophetic act that they've become corrupt, that they've missed the point, that they are dealing in death and not in life. They're actively working against the purposes of God, even though they claim to be his representatives on earth. Uh, And essentially, if you boil it down, this prophetic statement that Jesus is making is that God wants his Sabbath back. And in fact, he wants his people back. Jesus has come to liberate the Sabbath day, to reclaim it, and to liberate the people that are stuck under that corrupt system. In grace, in power, in love, he's come for that purpose. And so as we close, the things that we're left contemplating aren't the things we thought we would be contemplating. When I first read this passage, I thought, oh, it's another passage on physical healing. We'll go a little deeper than we did two Sundays ago. We'll open it up for prayer, and we can pray. We can do that. But as you actually see the story unfold, you realize, oh, no, 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 this is about something different. This is something more. I mean, Jesus physically healed a paralyzed man. (laughs) Hallelujah. Think of the beauty of that moment. I mean, our secular culture has nothing to say about that. Nothing. It it is a beautiful, in our culture, we would label it a supernatural thing. A beautiful, supernatural, spirit-filled thing that Jesus has done. We believe in physical healing. And as we wrestle with our own physical ailments as a local body, as we see um, the, the, the death and destruction and pain that is unfolding uh, in Ukraine, whether it's local, whether it's global, we say, no, Lord, you are the God of healing. Like you're full of healing. You're full of grace. You love to do that type of stuff. So when we invite you into a place, that's one of the things that you do, that you love to do. So we're inviting you, God, would you flood this body? Would you flood my physical body? Would you flood the, the, the nation of Ukraine? There's such a need for healing right now. We're, we're inviting the God of healing into those different environments. Uh, and he loves to do that. Jesus entered a, a dark, uh, pain-filled, war-torn world to bring himself, his love, his grace, his presence, and with it, that healing. But the beating heart of this passage is actually a rebuke of the Jewish leadership and a reclaiming of the true Sabbath day. It says, you have corrupted something that was not meant to be corrupted in that way. It, it is not supposed to be something that is legalistic and dry and, and obligatory. This is supposed to be something that's beautiful and it's full of life. Because the reality is that God wants to meet with us. God wants to meet with you. Not just in holy space, but in holy time. 
For some of us, that's 15 minutes in the morning. If we can manage to wake up earlier than our children, it works like 50% of the time. For some of us, that's escaping for an hour on a Wednesday afternoon to walk down to the local park and just spend an hour in silence and solitude, quieting our soul, inviting God, God, why am I so anxious right now? Why am I so angry? Why am I so fearful? And for all of us, uh, regardless of our age or what stage of life we're in, I would say all of us are invited through Jesus, through the scriptures, to engage, to reclaim a Sabbath day. 24 hours where we cease, where we stop working, where we unplug, and we trust in God. And some of you will instantly say, well, that's unrealistic. That's just, that's just a totally uh, pie-in-the-sky, unrealistic thing in our current society. Uh, but I think, actually, our current cultural moments, and even these weeks of war and bloodshed and nuclear threats, the 24-hour news cycle, I think that only makes the Sabbath more important to take hold of, not less. We need to reclaim a space in holy time. A place where we turn off our phones and we don't tweet and we don't watch the news and we aren't consumed with fear and anxiety. 24 hours to rest, to be restored, to find inner and outer healing, to slow down to get in touch with God's presence, to remember that we hope in Him. It's a 24-hour period every week where we practice turning from the frantic and the anxious and turning towards stillness and peace. To turn from the things that we're addicted to to the things that we want and to turn instead to the things that we need deep down in our souls. 24 hours in which we ultimately grow in trusting God. You see, if the Pharisees corrupted the Sabbath with stifling legalism, uh, I think we actually have the opposite problem. We have no boundaries. We have no space of holy time. Endless data is in my pocket. And the tweets and the posts and the videos and the news never, ever stop. And the unspoken message then becomes, well, then neither can I. I do not know how to unplug. I don't know how to turn this stuff off, but ironically, I'm struggling to trust in God right now. I don't know how to do that. I don't know what that means. 
Words like peace, contentment, satisfaction, joy, trust, deeply rooted, grounded, hopeful. Those all begin to evade us in a world without Sabbath. They slip through our fingers. Our minds, our hearts begin, begin to become hijacked by other things. They begin to slip into the frequency of the culture and the patterns of this world. You know what? If we slip into those patterns, if we lose our sense of abiding, I don't think we have much to offer the world. We can offer them information, Here's what the scriptures say. Here's what the gospels say. What we're meant to offer is God in us. In a world without holy time, in a world without Sabbath, in a world where we never stop, never unplug, never slow down, never rest, we will not have much to offer. point of today's passage isn't just that Jesus heals. Instead, it functions as an invitation to join Jesus in resurrecting the Sabbath, in reclaiming it, a place carved out for wonder and awe and trust and delight. A day where we stop watching and worrying and working. A full day each week where we trust God, we, we sort of mentally, spiritually, emotionally place into the hands of God our own junk and the stuff we see on the news and pandemics and wars and everything else. And we say, God, I'm not going to carry this today. This is not going to define me. This is in your hands. Teach me to trust you. We trust him with our our bank accounts and our provision and our reputations, online and otherwise. And we rest. We follow Jesus into the Sabbath, not out of guilt or religious obligation, but rather Jesus' invitation is to reclaim those times because we want the life that is in him, because we want to abide. He says, this is to be for you an anchor in the storm, a refuge, a place where you come to meet with me, a place marked out in holy time. In Jesus' own words, his rebuke or critique of the religious establishment can be summed up as this. He says, the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. The Pharisees, they missed one half of that phrase. We actually missed the other half. The Sabbath was made for you as a gift from God. Let's pray.
Jesus, we uh, come to you as uh, an anxious people, as a scattered people, as a um, perhaps the busiest uh, and hardest working, in a sense, longest working, certainly, people, uh, maybe in human history. We come into this place every morning, every Sunday morning, Honestly, a lot of us just kind of feeling frazzled and fractured and distracted uh, and, and kind of torn up. And Lord, for many of us, our souls don't even begin to settle until probably about now uh, or even an hour from now where we slowly start to unwind and come into a place of trust and abiding. Um, but Lord, you actually offer us something more than that. I think of that language uh, that was actually in terms of financial giving, but you told your people, hey, put me to the test. Put me to the test in this and see if I don't meet you in that place. Like just be radically generous and, and see if I don't fill your storehouses. Uh, and, and while that was originally said about finances, Lord, I think that's equally applicable to the state of our souls. Uh, to, to coming into a place of rest, to coming into a place of abiding the Sabbath, marking out holy time with you, whether it's 15 minutes in the morning or an hour on a weekday afternoon or an entire 24-hour day, which I believe was the design you knit into creation. Lord, all of those are sacrifices, uh, it, and it takes something of us. I think it's actually a step of risk. It's a step of faith. To say, no, for 24 hours, I, I'm not going to have my phone. I'm not going to watch the news. I'm not, I'm not going to be caught up in whatever it is. And, and I almost sense that same challenge, that same uh, beautiful, provoking challenge. Hey, test me in this. Start marking out these times, and maybe not the first time you try it, or the second time, or the third time, but over time, I will meet you in that place. Like, see, just test me and see if I don't meet you in that place and, and fill up sort of the spiritual storehouses of your soul in a unique way that you can never get outside of that. And so, Jesus, as we um, pray over the state of our world locally and globally, as we, I think with good reason, maybe agonize, over some of the things in our world, locally and globally, as, as we look to partner with you in bringing justice to the earth, God, may it be from a place of abiding. Because if we're cut off from the vine and we're just out there going through the motions, it's all going to be a dead work in the end. It's not even worth it. As we sort of struggle without you to do work in your name, that, that was the Pharisee's problem. Lord, may it not be true of us. May we be people who know what it is to abide, who know what it is to put you to the test and see if you don't meet us in times of holy space and in times of holy time. In Jesus' name.